This section will cover the issue of Islamic martyrdom in both its Sunni and Shiite forms. It comes as rather a surprise, I think, to those who study Islam for the first time to find out that martyrdom is rather a subsidiary topic in earlier Islam. It's a, a topic that's hardly even covered inside the Quranic material. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the words for martyrdom. The word martyr in English basically has to do with being a witness. Um, the question is, is what are you a witness for when you are a martyr? Uh, traditionally, one could be a witness in a court case or various different other legal procedures. But the most common use of the word martyr is someone who is willing to die for their faith. In other words, to bear testimony for its veracity by means of giving their own life. Now, the linguistic meaning of shahid, the word uh, in Arabic for martyr, comes very similarly. Uh, shahid can also be a martyr in the sense that he or she dies on behalf of his faith. Or they can also be witnesses in terms of court or uh, almost the equivalent of a notary public. Um, unfortunately, inside the Quran, most of the times, most of the, uh, the times the word is used are uh, not useful for martyrology. Uh, the word shahid, it's plural shuhada, are basically, uh, basically used as witnesses that are rather ambiguous in their nature. There's only a few cases where we can find mentions of a, a distinct chronic martyrology. And uh, the most common of those, the best known, is that in Surah number 85, where there's a discussion of, by the heaven of the many constellations and by the promised day and by what every witness and that which is witnessed, the word witness right there is basically the word shaheed, perish the companions of the pit, the fire well stoked while they sat around it and were witnessing what they did to the believers. <clears throat> the selection is rather ambiguous and uh, is not, it's not easy to know precisely what is being referred to there, but it's usually connected to the story of the martyrdom of the Christians of Najran, the city to the south of Mecca, during uh, which a number of Christians uh, perished in, uh, in a pogrom led uh, by the Judaizing king of that particular area. Now, there are several different martyrological stories that have come to be associated with this particular verse, the most common of which is known as the story of the boy, um, which inside the Hadith literature is described as being the story of this particular boy who is converted to the true religion, which is mentioned uh, as being just kind of a, not necessarily Islam, but belief in, in one true God, and uh, is then uh, given miraculous powers by which he converts a large number of people in his particular town, and uh, at a later time then is taken by the king of that area, and subject to a number of different questions, during the course of which the boy reveals that he does not believe in the local religion anymore. Instead, he believes in the one true God. The king's response, actually, is uh, to try and kill the boy, uh, which he does in three different ways, all three of which the boy survives. Uh, and then the boy reveals at the very end of his uh, of his troubles there that he cannot be killed except for by uttering the one name of the one true God. 
pretty interesting magical procedure right there. And one that is uh, is immediately verified by the fact that uh, the king puts the boy up on a cross, crucifies him, uh, and kills him repeatedly with arrows to make sure that he's dead. Uh, and so this the story has come to be the equivalent of a chronic martyrology. It's very interesting to note that other different prominent prophets that uh, inside the Bible are martyred, such as John the Baptist, uh, do not appear in this function inside the Quran. Uh, obviously, Jesus, uh, for polemical reasons, uh, cannot appear in this manner at all either. So Quranic martyrdom is very much focused upon uh, the experiences of early Muslims. Now, as you'll know from, uh, from classes on the Sirah, the early Muslim community in Mecca uh, was one that was persecuted to some degree by the local pagan population. And uh, especially those that were, uh, that were of a servile nature, especially those that were slaves uh, and, and had believed in Islam, were extremely vulnerable to the possibility that they would be tortured and in certain cases killed. And so the martyrology that early Islam has developed basically focused upon those uh, initial converts that were tortured, the most common of which uh, is the story of Bilal, uh, a black uh, Ethiopian ex-slave who was tortured by his owner uh, in Mecca by placing a large rock upon uh, upon his chest and then placing him out in the sun and ordering him to abjure Islam. Uh, that was not efficacious, and eventually uh, Bilal was then freed uh, and became a devout Muslim and actually became the first Muazain. Uh The earliest known martyr that's associated with Islam is actually a woman, uh, Sumaya, who was uh, killed by a spear uh, by one of the leading opponents of Islam. So the the early martyrology of these weaker Muslims is comparatively thin. There's nothing quite like the the vast martyrology that you find with regard to Christianity uh, that is uh, is preserved inside the lives of the saints. That changes to some degree once the uh, once the Muslims begin to move to Medina. In Medina, they have a position of power and authority that is gradually solidified over a period of five years. And moreover, Muslims begin to actually go out and fight on behalf of their new religion. And it's from that that we begin to find the first kind of departure from uh, what we might call uh, passive martyrdom into a much more active or aggressive type of martyrdom. In other words, martyrs are not just those people upon whom an action is being acted. They are those who are driving the action to its logical conclusion. In other words, they're able to seek out circumstances under which their martyrdom is very likely. The story that's best known about an early martyr in that regard is the story of Al-Khubaib. Al-Khubaib was, uh, was again, from the servile class of Muslims uh, who uh, was sent on a spying trip by the Prophet Muhammad and who was captured by the, uh, by the, uh, by the pagan Meccans and uh, then crucified. 
And so the story of him and his uh, and his prayer for vengeance against uh, his, against his tormentors uh, is extremely well known. But most of the Muslims that died did not die alone of this uh, in this uh, sort of way. They tended to die in actual battle, and so the ranks of Muslim martyrs are best known from those fighters that participated in the jihadic battles that were initiated by the Prophet Muhammad uh, over the period of his 10 years in uh, Medina. And there is a great deal of material that's concerning these types of martyrdom inside the Quran. Probably the best known of those are the, uh, are the selection of verses from uh, Surah number 3, 169 to 70, which uh, says, And do not think those who have been killed in the way of Allah is dead. They are rather living with their Lord, well provided for, rejoicing in what their Lord has given them of his bounty, and they rejoice for those who stayed behind and did not join them, knowing that they have nothing, nothing to fear and that they shall not grieve. This selection was uh, printed inside, uh, inside the surah that was revealed after the Battle of Uhud in 626. Uh, this was uh, uh, in 625, sorry, uh, uh, which was a major defeat for the early Muslims. And uh, during the course of which the prophet's uncle Hamza was, uh, was killed. Hamza is oftentimes considered to be the, uh, the Sayyid al-Shahada, the, the, the leader or, the, or the, uh, the most prominent one among the early martyrs. Um, he was very closely related to the Prophet. He had been a champion of Islam, and he was killed in a particularly brutal way by what we would today call a bounty hunt, uh, essentially commissioned by somebody who, uh, whose relative had been killed by Hamza. Now, when we read this particular verse, um, we see uh, specifically that it's directed to those martyrs who are killed in the path of God which is the most common euphemism for jihad. And it seems to specify that those people receive a special reward that is completely different or different in kind, let us say, from that of the uh, uh, others. We'll discuss that issue of reward at a later time, but it's important to note that Inside the Quran, those, spe- uh, those specific rewards are not delineated. There's a great many materials inside the Quran about descriptions of heaven, the pleasures of heaven, and so forth, but they are general in nature, focusing upon all Muslims rather than specific towards uh, those who actually die in battle. Um, so... Uh, we have to we have to point out the fact that, that Christian and Muslim martyrdom have developed in completely different trajectories. The Christian martyrdom in general has focused upon those people who die for the faith, usually not of their own volition, and in general has uh, frowned upon those people who would seek out circumstances under which they would likely be killed. Uh, whereas Muslim uh, martyrdom has, uh, has evolved a different way, and that the, the vast majority of Muslims who have been martyred and who are considered and remembered as martyred are actually those people who were fighting in battle, who chose to fight in battle, and who took upon themselves the possibility that they could uh, die from it. <clears throat> 
Now, there's a number of different problems from this, uh, and we'll be touching upon them during the course of this lecture. But uh, one of them is, uh, is the fact that inside Islam, there's no normalization or canonization process. In other words, there's no particular list of martyrs that can be considered to be authoritative. Mostly, what you have are those that are considered to be uh, martyrs of all Muslims. In other words, those people that were close to the Prophet Muhammad, they are beyond any of the sectarian differences that uh, quickly uh, separated Muslims into Sunni and Shiite uh, camps, um, such as Hamza, uh, who's venerated by both uh, Sunnis and Shiites, and others of the different uh, the Muslim servile class. But beyond that, that select group, there's very little normalization of the, of the martyrdom canonization process. Uh, those martyrs that are venerated by Sunnis are usually not venerated by Shiites. Those that are venerated by Shiites are usually not venerated by Sunnis. There are a few exceptions to that rule, but in general, that is the case. Uh, of all the groups in Islam, there's no doubt that Shiism pre uh, preserves the most systematic martyrology. But even for Shiism, there's no necessary uh, list that's available other than uh, that of the imams, all of whom are considered to be martyrs and will be discussed shortly, um, that is available to simply say who is a martyr and who is not a martyr. In addition to this fact, there's a large number of local martyrs that have been chosen in various different areas and are extremely important on a local basis, but are not recognized in the larger Muslim community. There can be uh, these chosen by, let's say, African uh, Muslim communities, uh, usually uh, of that particular person who would uh, be an early Muslim who maybe would come to a given area and try and convert its people to Islam and sometimes be killed for it. This is a very similar paradigm to that of, uh, uh, of India and also in Indonesia where you have the nine martyrs of Java, that uh, group that is traditionally the, um, the first uh, Muslim group that, uh, that brought Islam into Indonesia. So there's no normalization process. Um, there's also no uh, standard definition about what constitutes a martyr. We'll go over this uh, at a later time, but uh, one of the problems is, is defining what is a martyr. Uh, and there is no accepted issue of who precisely is going to constitute a martyr uh, other than dying in warfare. Now here I'll give you uh, the tradition, the standard tradition that deals with this particular subject, which uh, says the messenger of God said, what do you consider the acceptable circumstances of martyrdom? And the people around him said, being killed in the path of God, jihad. Already you can see that, uh, that Islam doesn't really even seem that cognizant of the possibility that people might die in martyrdom uh, in other ways by an oppressive government. The messenger of God said, there are seven types of martyrdom other than being killed in the path of God. The one who dies of the plague is a shaheed. The one who drowns is a shaheed. The one who dies of pleurisy is a shaheed. The one who dies of a stomach complaint is a shaheed. The one who dies in a fire is a shaheed. 
and the one who dies in a building collapse is a shaheed, and the woman who dies in childbirth is a shahida. So this particular tradition is an attempt to uh, categorize different other types of, uh, of martyrdom that should not be, uh, that are not included in the actual fighting process um, and is interesting, but it is by no means restrictive. Later books uh, that dealt with the question of martyrdom oftentimes expanded the, uh, the issue of martyrdom way out of all proportion. We'll talk about that shortly. The third point that I would like to uh, like to uh, mention is is that there's no doubt that uh, that Sufis constitute the major manifestation of Sunni martyrdom. Sufism, being the mystical expression of Islam, is uh, at the forefront of Muslim missionization. Sufis uh, usually traveled as uh, mendicant holy men or women in certain cases. Uh, oftentimes as fighters, sometimes doubling as traders or, or merchants, um, but oftentimes just wandering, coming into a given area, performing miracles, becoming an object of local adulation, and oftentimes thereby converting large numbers of people. So the vast majority of Muslims have been converted by, by, Shia, Shia, uh, by Sufis sorry, uh, at some time in their ancestors' history. Now, many of those Sufis were actually martyred. And so one finds that, that almost all of the martyrs, almost all of the, uh, the, the martyrs that, that you find in, in, uh, in Sunnism are of a, of a Sufi background. There's a few exceptions to that rule. Uh, the major exception is the Caliph Uthman, uh, the third Caliph after the, the death of the Prophet Muhammad, who ruled between 644 and 656. Uh, Uthman was essentially an incompetent uh, who allowed a large amount of enmity to build up against him and his family, the Umayyads, over, during the period of his rule. And because he was not a very strong caliph, eventually a large number of those enemies came to, uh, to Medina and, uh, and butchered him. Now, this assassination was uh, different in type from other assassinations that had happened uh, to prominent Muslims prior to uh, the time of Uthman. For one thing, it w represented a groundswell of Muslim uh, enmity towards their own leader that uh, was almost uh, a popular expression. In other words, he was killed not by a single lone madman, as his predecessor, Omar, had been, but by a large number of people who collectively had a number of grievances against Uthman. He was killed in a particularly despicable way. As he was reading his Quran, uh, the Quran of Uthman uh, is said to have been soaked with his blood and was preserved for centuries afterwards, uh, as being the symbol of caliphal rule. Uh, he was killed while being hugged by his own wife, uh, who tried to preserve his life. And so there's a certain element of pathos that is involved in this death. After his death, not surprisingly, Uthman became a, a symbol for many Sunnis, of an older man who had been a, 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 a companion of the prophet, 
um, who, although he had been inconfident, had at least been pious uh, in contradistinction to his assassins. And so uh, around him, there built up a, a very large uh, literature of martyrdom. Uh, a man who is killed in this manner um, oftentimes has the rest of his sins uh, forgiven or forgotten, at least by the broader public. There's a large number of other martyrdom figures uh, that primarily were of an anti-government nature. Sunnis were very closely associated with rule and rarely had difficulties uh, achieving that. Whereas, uh, as we'll discuss in the next section, Shiites were almost permanently out of power. Um, but Sunnis also occasionally had times where uh, they were in opposition to the government. And so most of their martyrdom, most of the, the, their major figures who were martyred, uh, were those who uh, led some sort of protest against, uh, against the given government. The two most obvious examples of that are the, uh, the, the leader of the Hanbalite movement, uh, Ahmed bin Hanbal, who is well known to have been tortured for his belief in uh, the uncreated Quran. Uh, this is a doctrine that uh, was uh, important during the ninth century, where uh, the, the rationalists, the Mu'atazilites, believed in the created nature of the Quran. And uh, this uh, was in stark opposition to the beliefs of the uh, of the Shiite uh, of the Sunni uh, uh, group led by Ahmed bin Hanbal. And so Ahmed bin Hanbal was beaten and tortured in various different ways, but he was never killed in the end. Um, nonetheless, lacking any other martyrdom, the beating of, of Ahmed bin Hanbal serves as something of a, of a martyrdom story for the Hanbalite uh, leadership. Uh, Ahmed bin Hanbal was followed centuries later by uh, one of his disciples, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, also from his same right, uh, who died in 1326. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah was one of the leaders of the Hanbalites in Egypt and in Syria, uh, where he led a very vociferous theological and political campaign against uh, both Jews and Christians and against the, uh, the excesses of Sufis, and the, uh, the, the central government of the time. So needless to say, Ibn, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah also attracted the negative attention of the, uh, uh, of the local authorities and spent a considerable amount of time in prison. So when we look at Su uh, Sunni martyrology, we mostly find that it's uh, Sufis that have died. Sunni ulama were oftentimes tortured, but rarely actually killed. And the fourth point that I would like to like to bring out is uh, is that the legal material uh, involving uh, martyrdom is actually quite problematic. Uh, dealing with legal theories of uh, of martyrdom, uh, let's return back to the issue of who exactly is a martyr. Um, in general, we can say absolutely that the that the the strongest consensus is surrounds those martyrs who die in battle. Uh, especially in battle that is deemed to be jihad. Um, beyond that, there's very little consensus. Probably the best-known booklet on the subject is uh, Suyuti's Abwaba Sa'ada, Fiasbaba Shahada, The Gates of Happiness Concerning the Circumstances of Martyrdom, in which uh, Suyuti uh, discusses the, uh, some 57 different categories of martyrdom. Now, 
when you read them over, and I'll read over some of them, he says, uh, he says the traveler who dies away from, uh, from his home uh, is a martyr, the one who dies of fever, the one who is thrown from his mount while he is going to fight and dies, someone who guards the frontiers of Islam, someone who dies in defense of his or her property, someone who is eaten by wild animals, someone who is denied justice and dies from it, someone who is killed by an unjust ruler after he enjoins the ladder to righteousness, someone who is bitten by a venomous uh, creature and dies from it, whoever dies of sickness, whoever dies of love sickness, as well as whoever dies of seasickness. These initial uh, categories already can give us the sense that martyrdom at this particular time, and Suzy died in 1505, uh, was extremely broad. There was a, a desire, a collective desire, on the part of the Muslim community that is best reflected inside the Hadith literature, that uh, as many people as possible be uh, regarded as shaheeds. Um, and beyond this list, uh, the, uh, the categories that, uh, that Suyuti brings become increasingly broader. Uh, he lists off, he says, uh, he says, any believer who dies, any woman who resists being jealous, Anyone who says, oh, Allah, bless me in my death and what follows my death and then dies. Whoever pray, uh, prays the pre-dawn prayers, fasts three days out of every month and does not forget the superogatory prayers. Whoever is a student and dies and whoever is a righteous merchant and dies, whoever brings food to one of the border towns, whoever treats his wife and children rightly, whoever lives as a friendly person and uh, the righteous uh, muhtasib or town censor. So these uh, categories are so broad that it raises the question uh, after you read uh, Suyuti's book whether there's anybody left who isn't a martyr. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to say whether one could be a Muslim and any believer who dies then is a martyr. Uh, it raises uh, serious questions about whether there's even any need to go any further than that. Now it's only fair to say that uh, most of the circumstances of martyrdom right here are not reflected inside the literary sources. Although you find a, a whole category known as the martyrs of love, those people who die because they have loved truly and have either been rejected or have stayed in a state of chastity until they died, uh, is definitely known from the literary sources. And there's a number of different books that have been written on it. But other different categories, especially of the ridiculous nature uh, or extremely broad nature here, not surprisingly, uh, have no, left no trace inside the, inside the uh, literary or religious uh, material that has survived to us. But it raises serious questions because one can see from the, from the book of Asiyuti that the whole definition of what constitutes a martyr beyond the one who dies in jihad or battle and leaving aside the, the, the martyr of love uh, has been not uh, very carefully defined by the Hadith literature, let alone by the legal or Sharia literature. The second point that I would like to deal with is what are the legitimate methods by which one can become a martyr? Now, in Quran uh, Surah uh, 429, we read that, uh, that Muslims are strictly prohibited uh, from committing suicide. And so it's not surprising to find that there's extensive discussion about what 
in the martyrdom process differentiates it from actual suicide. In other words, when one asks for the Shahada, in other words, martyrdom, truly, is one asking for actual uh, the committing of suicide, which is prohibited by the Quran. Uh, it bears noting that usually the, uh, uh, the punishment that's given inside the Hadith literature for somebody who does commit suicide is that they continue throughout uh, eternity to use that self-same method upon themselves. So if they die by stabbing themselves, then they spend eternity uh, stabbing themselves or jumping off a cliff or so forth. So those methods are particularly harsh. The judgment of a suicide is, uh, is not a pleasant one. But because uh, the suicidal process is so close to that of martyrdom, and martyrdom is very lauded, it's important that, the, that there be a, a strong and strict boundary between those two uh, categories. So the, the discussion usually, form, uh, real, uh, usually centered upon uh, the, what was known as the single combat. Uh, prior to each battle, usually there was a process by which uh, a given champion would step out in front of his uh, colleagues and he would challenge the other army to single combat. Usually this challenge was answered by a similar champion who would stand forth and they would, uh, they would uh, fight together until one of them was killed and uh, then the general battle would commence. Um, however, the standing forth does indicate a certain willingness to actually die. But the question is, is does it, in, uh, does it uh, indicate an inevitability? And at what particular point does the, uh, does the person's uh, desire to participate in a battle actually become suicidal? The legal scholars ruled that that, uh, that, that person who stepped forward to, uh, to single combat was not actually committing suicide. But they threw out another example. And that example is what's known as the one who, the single fighter who charges a large number. In other words, if uh, there's a single fighter and he is opposed by, uh, usually the number is given of 100, uh, and he charges them and he, he, he engages them in fighting, is that particular person actually committing suicide? Because he knows with some amount of certainty that uh, he would uh, not survive such, a, uh, such an encounter. Now, in general, the, the scholars were more than a little bit hesitant to rule about this, uh, this category known as the single fighter. Um, they usually came up with the idea that if there was intent on his part to, uh, to, uh, to see this as jihad, he was not actually committing suicide. Um, and so gradually scholars began to coalesce around the idea that intent inside a battle was extremely important and that it was intent really no, only known to God and clarified during the last few moments of one's life that would decide whether or not something was jihad or whether it was actually suicide. We'll have to come back to that point because it's, a, it's very important when discussing the issue of suicide attacks, which uh, 
are um, uh, so common. Now, there are other different methods of, uh, of becoming a martyr that have to do with, uh, with things that are beyond the volition of a human being. Um, another very common uh, category of martyr not previously listed is what's known as the plague martyr. Now, prior to, uh, prior to modern medicine, it, of course, was extremely important for uh, plague victims not to travel, or if they did travel, to be placed in some sort of a quarantine to make sure that they did not infect other people. And so we have a, we have a whole series of traditions that concern the plague martyr in which uh, one is encouraged not to travel, to simply die, accepting the uh, the inevitable, to make sure that uh, the, that uh, other people do not die or are infected by their particular disease. Um, and so it raises the question of whether one should travel to a plague-infected area and whether there's a possibility of doing that when uh, when... Uh, seeking out such martyrdom might be uh, a problem in that case. And that, that question has never really been fully resolved. Um, a third point, which I would like to address, is what is the purpose of martyrdom? And how should it be utilized? This is a question uh, that is, uh, is oftentimes raised in, as far as operations go. Uh, the purpose of martyrdom in the most basic form is to bear witness to something. In other words, that one would give a testimonial by, base, uh, uh, by, by offering one's life uh, that something is true. But is this the most efficacious way of actually proclaiming a given truth or a given uh, ideology? And that's something that, that legal scholars actually debated out. Is the, is the martyr actually achieving something? What is being achieved if they just die? This is a point we'll, which we'll come back to when we discuss suicide attacks, um, but it, it, it bears some amount of thought about what exactly uh, or, or who exactly is the intended audience of a martyr who is dying in battle and how would such an audience be convinced in a way that uh, is incontrovertible if they were not becoming a martyr? Um, point number four, the issue of a spiritual activity. Now, this is uh, something that's quite important that, uh, that we have to discuss that... Um, because jihad and martyrdom are uh, considered over a long period of time to not just be uh, military or witnessing activities, but they also have spiritual uh, qualities that are closely attached to them. Probably the best-known tradition of that is uh, that of, um, of Abdullah bin al-Mubarak, uh, who died in, in 797, who discussed this types of three believers who fight in the jihad. He says, one is a true believer who struggles with himself and his possessions in the path of God. And when he meets the enemy, he is killed. And it says that this shaheed is tested. And here is the most important thing is, is that 
is that that particular person has gone through a spiritual test. The spiritual test that he's passed is that he's willing to die for his faith. So he's tested and is in the camp of God under his throne. The prophets do not exceed him in merit except for by the level of prophecy. So you can see that the martyrs are basically being considered to be on the same level as the, uh, those, uh, those who have been given prophecy. Then the second category is we have a believer who commits offenses and sins against himself. So he's a sinning but repentant believer who struggles with himself and his possessions in the path of God, and he fights until he is killed. Then he's, it says, this cleansing wipes away his offenses and his sins. Behold, the sword wipes away sins. There's probably no other more powerful description of the spiritual aspect of jihad and martyrdom in early Islam than that attitude of the sword wipes away the sins. In other words, if one is a compromised or a sinning believer, then there is an option for release or redemption. And that release or redemption could come through death and battle. Um, we will have to come back to that point again later on when we talk about uh, suicide attacks. Now, the third, group, uh, the, uh, the third category is a hypocrite who dies in battle, but he goes to hell because his intentions aren't pure. Um, and so this, uh, this tradition highlights the spiritual value, the spiritual necessity of purity of intention at that very last moment uh, before one dies. Now, what should one do in order to prepare for that moment? And that's not an easy question to answer because, once again, that leads us down the, problem, uh, the problematic path of desiring to die, in other words, leading to suicide. But nonetheless, one needs to make sure, first of all, that, uh, that one is fighting for the correct reasons. And there are several different reasons that are accepted and several that are rejected uh, inside the Hadith literature. The major one that is accepted is to, uh, to lift the word of God to the highest, which is uh, essentially a paraphrase of Quran 941. Um, the other ones that are rejected are those that concern fame, uh, obtaining of fame or fortune, uh, or uh, glory in battle or to show oneself to be brave, and so forth. So all of those different uh, worldly goals are uh, specifically rejected uh, inside, um, inside the Hadith literature. Um, a fifth point has to do with the rewards for the martyr. Now, when we discussed the Quranic material, uh, we noted that from uh, from the verse in uh, in uh, surah number three one sixty nine to seventy that martyrs were as it were set aside, but there was no specific reward that was given to them that was so much qualitatively better than that of other believers but uh, so the so the hadith tradition uh, has rectified that to some extent. And uh, in the collection of a Tirmidhi, we find the following tradition listed. It says, in the sight of God, the martyr has six unique qualities. God forgives him at the first opportunity and shows him his place in paradise. He is saved from the torment of the grave. He is safe from the great fright of the resurrection. 
A crown of honor is placed upon his head, one ruby of which is better than the world and all that is in it. He is married to 72 of the Huris, and he gains the right to intercede for 70 of his relatives. It's from this particular tradition that we find uh, the most interesting qualities that are given to the martyr that are fairly unique. And of those, usually the ones that are, are concentrated on the most are the ones that have always been, already been alluded to in terms of forgiveness of sins, the sword wipes away sins, and then the last two, being married to 72 of the Huris and uh, gaining the right of intercession. The sexual rewards that are given to the martyr, especially from, uh, from the Huris, are a subject of a great deal of literature. And one cannot deny that uh, this is a polemical issue. It's frequently debated out between uh, Muslims and non-Muslims. And because it's uh, somewhat embarrassing for, for Muslims, it's oftentimes denied in popular literature that the 72 Huris are actually some sort of reality. But there's no doubt about it from when one reads through the, uh, through the, uh, through the literature. Um, and I, I'll just read a couple of examples of some stories that, that you can find. Uh, this is also taken from, uh, from Abdullah bin al-Mubarak, who says, Swords are the keys to paradise. When a man advances upon the enemy, the angels say, Oh God, help him. When he retreats, they say, Oh God, forgive him. The first drop of blood dripping from the sword brings forgiveness with it for every sin, and two Huris come down to wipe the dust off of his face, saying, Your time has come. And he says, No, the time has come for you. In other words, he will be with them in paradise. There's frequent descriptions throughout the jihad literature of the sort of sexual delights that are going to happen inside, uh, inside, the, um, uh, inside paradise for the martyrs specifically. And so it's a, kind of be, become sort of a locus for, um, for this type of material to appear around martyrs, even though the, the, the fact is, is that most of the, the descriptions of Huris and women of paradise that appear inside the Quran do appear to be generalized, actually, for all Muslims, rather than specifically focused upon martyrs. But in the popular imagination, because of this mention of the 72 Huris, you find a continual uh, emphasis upon martyrs and, uh, and their specific rewards as opposed to those of Muslims overall. Um, the second uh, thing that's, that's very important right there is that right of intercession. And I don't think that there's any doubt that this is an attractive feature of, uh, of, uh, for martyrs. Because the idea right there is that, uh, is that one person could take care of, in other words, his spiritual authority, his spiritual aura would take care of 70 or so people that he would choose. Now, of course, the number 70 is one of those uh, holy numbers, so we don't really know how many people that covers. Usually in classical literature, 70 indicates a large number. Um, but, uh, so we shouldn't necessarily take it as, as being literal, but, uh, the, the most important point is that actual right of intercession. In other words, the martyr is one who joins the ranks of the prophets and other different holy men, Sufis and so forth, 
uh, and righteous uh, from previous generations in actually being able to uh, to speak with God in a direct way and to intercede on behalf of other people. And so that, that intercession, it's very clear from anecdotes that one finds inside the literature that you could actually delegate somebody to go and fight and that that particular person then would, as it were, cover the sins of, uh, of many around them, which makes it very interesting to hear. Um, in general, the, the reward uh, that's uh, most commonly mentioned about uh, 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 martyrs inside the literature has to do with uh, descriptions of them inside paradise and is oftentimes called the tradition of the green birds. And it reads as follows. It says, uh, it says, when your brothers were struck at the Battle of Uhud, Allah placed their spirits in the insides of green birds who go to the rivers of paradise and eat from its produce and then alight upon candles of gold in the shadow of the throne. From that tradition, one can get an idea about the, uh, the physical geography of paradise, that the birds are used for transportation and uh, the locus of the martyrs is extremely close to the, to the throne of God. When they, in other words, the martyrs, realize the goodness of their drink and food and the beauty of their rest, they say, would that our brothers knew what Allah has done with us so that they too could devote our, themselves to jihad and not abstain from battle. So the rewards of the martyr are quite impressive. They're uh, very much in the spirit of classical Islamic rewards, um, but they have developed a genre of their own that sets them apart to some extent from the, um, uh, from the others. Point number six is what effects do the martyrs have after his or her death? And this is a, a very interesting thing um, because it uh, harks back to the fact that so many of the martyrs have been Sufis or various different other holy men uh, from, uh, from different areas and it continues various different popular beliefs about the efficaciousness of their actual bodies after their death. Um, and this is, uh, this is weakly attested inside the, inside the Islamic canonical literature. But one finds it as you get, as you move further and further away from the canonical literature into popular beliefs that the martyr's body actually has a holiness of a, in and of itself. And that's reflected to some degree by the methods of burial of the martyr. Unlike all other Muslims who are washed, their bodies are washed uh, before they are buried, and they're usually buried inside a, a white linen uh, casket uh, that's wrapped around them. Uh, unlike all other Muslims, the martyrs are not buried washed. In other words, they are left with their blood stains on them, and they are buried inside their armor or their clothes or whatever whatever they were wearing when they were uh, when they were slain, and so uh, and so there, there there grew up this idea that the martyr's body had a certain purity or holiness that was attached to it that continued on after uh, after death, and so miracles are, are attested uh, to uh, to these sort of bodies. Uh, frequently, people will say in the popular literature that they smell of musk, they smell sweet, 
rather than uh, the usual rotting smell of, uh, of, of decaying bodies. And sometimes they have uh, light that appears from them. Sometimes the, the bodies will even uh, act upon this world. In other words, sometimes they will, they will get up and, uh, and, uh, and punch an enemy or take up a sword and, and, and slay someone that, uh, uh, that otherwise would have become victorious in battle. So they continue to act on behalf of Islam just as they acted uh, when they were alive and so forth. Uh, and so that's that's led to a whole martyrology, concern, especially on a local level, that has to do more with miracle working. Um, that we'll talk a little bit about when we when we talk about contemporary uh, contemporary martyrology. Um, point number seven has to do with uh, the the question of women. Um, one can easily see that uh, the rewards. Uh, that are given to the martyr are very male-oriented. And so it raises questions that were already raised in the Middle Ages to some extent, but definitely much more during our own present time, about what are the rewards that are given to a female martyr? Um, and is there some sort of desirability to women participating in battle and dying on behalf of Islam? Now, from the, uh, from the time of the Prophet Muhammad, there were women who participated in battle. Um, it's very clear that uh, there's uh, lists of, very, uh, of various different female companions of the Prophet, uh, usually numbering about, uh, about a dozen, who participated in various different battles. Uh, and some of those actually participated uh, in hand-to-hand combat. Um, some of them are said to have taken up knives, uh, and slain opponents or sometimes dispatched uh, wounded who uh, were part of the enemy camp. Uh, sometimes uh, a woman, for example, is described as having whacked um, a, an enemy over the head with a pot um, or various different other things like that. But for the most part, the, the activity that's associated with women uh, in early Islam is of a medical or auxiliary nature. But uh, there are different questions about whether a woman can participate in jihad and gain the sort of reward that is promised uh, to the men. Now, in, in, in the books of jihad, uh, Aisha, the, uh, the uh, young wife of, of the prophet, is said to have asked uh, the prophet, can we fight in the jihad? And his answer to that was is that the best jihad for a woman is to make a righteous pilgrimage. Now, when one considers the fact that pilgrimage up until the modern time was actually extremely dangerous, um, I think that, that it's understandable that, uh, that a pilgrimage is actually roughly equivalent, actually, to, um, to that sort of travail that a man would go through uh, in warfare. But nonetheless... Uh, there are questions about what happens with those sort of rewards that are very male-oriented, like the uh, like the type of sexual rewards that are described inside the Tirmidhi tradition. Now, in general, uh, the conclusion that has happened from uh, from classical Islam is is that uh, is that a righteous woman martyr is married to her husband in in paradise, uh, and she does not get 
72 uh, righteous men in the same way that a male would. Um, but the, I, I think that the, the, the draw for a woman in, in the martyrdom process would not actually be the sexual rewards that, uh, that are listed, but that right of intercession. And uh, it's upon that particular right that you oftentimes find people uh, emphasizing why it is beneficial for a woman to actually uh, participate in the martyrdom or jihad uh, process. The fact is, is in conclusion, uh, that martyrdom, as far as its legal ramifications go, was nowhere near as carefully explained or examined by Sunni scholars as, uh, as uh, were the issues concerning jihad. Um, it's really been only in the present day that martyrdom has been much more fully examined from a legal, from a religious, and from a cultural point of view, uh, and developed uh, beyond what you find in the medieval material in which it's uh, rather sparsely attested. Thank you.